We're beginning a new series uh, today, and this is going to take us, I'm not sure how long, but into well into next year. Um, And I'd like to begin by imagining with you, let's just say that rather than this being a church service, that this actually is a class. Welcome, class. Supposed to say, good morning, professor. Yes. Um, I expect all of you to be kissing up to me for a good grade this year, and I'll look forward to all the apples. But uh, it's a college class, okay? And let's say it's not just a college class, it's like a Bible college class or a seminary class. And the uh, class is uh, about the teachings of Jesus and the apostles, okay? You're taking... Uh, Jesus' teaching and apostolic teaching uh, 304 is the, is the class. And the purpose of the class then is to learn about the teaching of Jesus and the teaching of the apostles and to ask the question, what was their focus? Like, where, where did they really go with their teaching when they had opportunity to teach? What did they talk about? And uh, we could even begin the class by asking that question, like, what... What did Jesus talk about? What did the apostles talk about? And you might say, well, they talked about sin, or they talked about um, the gospel, or they talked about uh, eternal life, judgment, things like this. Okay, all good answers, because certainly all of those were things that they talked about. Now, here's the thing. As a bonus feature in this class, we actually have, and this is top secret, but we have a time machine. In fact, this auditorium is a time machine. And when you come to class, we actually are going to go back in time to actually hear those messages as they were taught the very first time. Now, that would be very exciting to get back, first century, see the cultures, eat the food, smell the smells, and hear hear those moments when Jesus talked, did the Sermon on the Mount, or, you know, Paul at Ephesus, or whatever it might be. We actually are going to hear them, and then, you know, we come back here to our present time, and then we have like a dialogue, and we say, well, what was like you expected, and maybe what was not what you expected, or what did you hear that uh, is different than what you hear typically from pulpits today, okay? So that's what we would do. What do you think we would be most surprised to hear in those first century messages? Well, let me just, I can't take you back in time, but we can through Scripture. What did they talk about? To give you some samples, here is the basic core message of John the Baptist. Matthew 3, verse 2. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's what he talked about, the kingdom of heaven. Here's Matthew 4:23. And he went through all throughout all Judea, this is Jesus now, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Okay? There's a theme developing class. Here is the apostle Paul. Okay? In Ephesus, it says in uh, Acts 19 verse 8, And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly. Okay, great. Well, let's hear some of those messages. What was he talking about? Reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Here is the Apostle Paul at the end of Acts. 
He spends two years under house arrest in Rome. Here's the summary of his teaching for those two years. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching them about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And I'll throw in Philip, just as another example from Acts 8. He preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. Okay, class. Are we noticing a theme here in the teachings of Jesus and the apostles? What were Jesus' parables mostly all about? What was the Sermon on the Mount about? What uh, what if they talked about something that was the big theme for them, and that thing is something that in the contemporary American church is like hardly ever talked about, and most people don't even know what it is. What if the main or major theme of the Jesus teaching and the apostles teaching somehow over time became a minor theme in the contemporary church? You would say, well, how could that happen? I mean, seriously. No good preacher, pastor, leader would allow that to happen. And yet, I think that is very much the situation that we find ourselves in. How many contemporary pastors, if they were under house arrest for two years and the church came to meet with them and talk with them, the main thing that they would talk about is the kingdom of God. How many church planners go to some new community and the one thing they talk about is the kingdom of God? I say not very many, right? Not very many, if any, at all. Now you'd say, okay, kingdom of God, really, Steve, um, I don't have never heard that much about it. I don't really know what it is. But if it was that important, Jesus would tell us that this was the thing that we were supposed to focus on. Well, actually, he did. Matthew 6, Seek first the kingdom of God. This is the thing Jesus said that we were to seek. Do we seek first the kingdom of God? I would submit to you that it is difficult to seek the, number, the first in your thing in your life when you don't exactly know what it is. And if I was to stop right now and say, Christian, what is the kingdom of God? How many Christians here, maybe you've been a Christian a long time, could say, bam, this is what the kingdom of God is. I would dare say not very many people here probably would confidently throw out a definition of the kingdom of God. And yet, this is what the apostles talked about, and this is what Jesus talked about, and what Jesus said is the number one thing that we are to seek in our life is the kingdom of God. How could that happen? Now, if you think I'm throwing stones at people, I've been pastored here a long time. If you were to say to me, Steve, of all the teaching that you've done over 19 years here now, what is the biggest glaring weakness I would say it has been my teaching on the kingdom of God, which has been minimal at best. So I'm not just throwing stones at everybody else. I'm throwing stones at myself and kind of the awareness within our congregation and the appreciation and really the priority of the kingdom of God and how that should shape the way that I view my life and I view my family and my time and my politics and everything else. I think that this is an area that we very much need really clear teaching on. And so to remedy my, uh, my own uh, absent teaching on the kingdom of God, we're going to pound it, okay? We're going to grind it. We are going to get into what is the kingdom of God. 
and what does it mean for all of our lives. And so we're going to dig deep on this. My goal is to, again, remedy our oversight and to do so from the Gospel of Matthew. And the reason I picked the Gospel of Matthew is that of all the Gospels, and probably of any book in the Bible that is, teaches about the kingdom of God, it is the Gospel of Matthew. So we are not going to go necessarily verse by verse through Matthew. It's a very long book. That would be like four years of teaching or something like that. We are going to really focus on what Matthew teaches us about the kingdom and about the king of the kingdom. Okay? So let's spend a little time talking about Matthew Uh, just to introduce the Gospel of Matthew, okay? Matthew is the first book in the New Testament, canon, the listing of of the book, and it is the first of four what is known as Gospels, okay? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the four Gospels. They are the four portraits of, of Jesus, critical books that we have, The word gospel, by the way, it literally means good news, or we might say like awesome news, great news. The gospel according to Matthew, the good news according to Matthew. And these gospels all tell us the incredible news about Jesus and his incarnation and his life and his ministry and his life, his death, his resurrection, and what it means. Now, each of them do it slightly differently, though. Okay, and this is part of why you know, the apologists say that, that uh, we can trust the accounts of the four Gospels is that they're not exactly the same. If, if there's an accident on the street and the police interview four different people who saw it and they give a word-for-word exactly the same account of what happened, everybody knows it's a sham. Why? Because four people are never going to see one event exactly the same. And then when they don't, it actually sort of proves the veracity of it. Same when it comes to Jesus. Four accounts, they're all slightly different, just like you would expect. Four people who actually saw the same event or the same person. Uh, Matthew, as we'll get into here in a second, is focuses on Jesus as the king of the kingdom. Okay, he's the king of the king of the kingdom. Mark, a little bit different. You read through Mark, it's kind of like the MTV gospel. It's the short sort of snippets like this that portray Jesus as the Son of God. And then you read Luke, and we know that Luke was a medical doctor, and so he brings sort of that more kind of scientific, sort of uh, precision, journalistic approach to his gospel, and he, uh, he writes it that way. John, on the other hand, is not as concerned about order and chronology as he is a theologian. He is giving a portrait. So Luke tells us what happened. John tells us what it means. And so they each have their own unique focus, the four gospels. History tells us that Matthew was written by one of the 12 disciples whose name was Matthew, okay, hence the gospel according to Matthew. And that is somewhat debated, but historically, the church has always believed that that Matthew was the one that wrote this Matthew. Now, if you read Mark and Luke, you can get confused because they call Matthew Levi, okay, Levi. Matthew was a tax collector. Jesus came up to him and said, come and I will make you fishers of men, come follow me. And he left his table, and he became a follower of Jesus. And there's more to that story maybe that we'll incorporate in our series. Matthew writes to show Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures and prophecies about the coming king, okay, the Messiah, the son of David who would rule on an eternal throne. Matthew is very much, over and over, he'll say, and this uh, occurred 
to, uh, to fulfill this particular prophecy, and he'll quote the prophecy, and he connects the life of Jesus with the fulfillment of that prophecy. He uniquely presents Jesus as king. He begins his gospel with the royal genealogy of Jesus, tracing Jesus' genealogy through Joseph, making Jesus the son of David which is a very critical Jewish understanding of who the Messiah would be, that he would be the son of David. Matthew also is the only gospel that tells about these magi, these wise men that come, these kind of rulers from a foreign land that make the trek all the way and they bow before Jesus and they give him extravagant gifts. Matthew is the only one that tells that. He ends his gospel with the famous words, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Well, what authority is he talking about? And that authority is to be exerted and ruling where? Like, why would that be so important? All things that we're going to get into in our, in our series. So, Matthew presenting Jesus as the son of David, the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, the king of a kingdom. So with that, I'd like to just use one verse. This is kind of an introduction message to the series today. One verse that, um, that highlights the overall summary of Jesus' ministry, and it's Matthew 9, verse 35. Matthew 9, verse 35. Here's what it says, okay? And, and this is repeated, by the way, twice in the Gospel of Matthew, almost word for word. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. What was Jesus' ministry? In terms of teaching, it says here, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Where did he do this? Primarily, he did this in Galilee. Okay, Now, where's Galilee? If you look at a map, and we have one here, Galilee is in this northern territory. If you heard of the Sea of Galilee, that's that body of water right there, okay? It's really more like a, it's a big lake, essentially. But Galilee, okay, northern Israel, this is where, this is where Jesus lived. Nazareth is here, Capernaum is here. So many of the stories of the gospel all happening in the little towns and villages all around Galilee, And the summary statement here is that Jesus spent his time going around in this area in all of these towns and cities. Now, we we know from history that Galilee had 240 cities and villages. So what would Jesus do? He would go into that town, he would find the synagogue, and the synagogue was a little house place of worship there for the, for the Jewish community where they would gather there on the Sabbath. And it, was, it wasn't the temple. It was like a, a, uh, an extended temple, not really a temple, but in every town, that was their place of worship, their house of worship. He would go into that town and he would teach. And over time, his fame increased because of his miracles and because of his teaching to such an extent that when he came in, it was a huge event. We know, like, for example, when Jesus comes into Jericho, it's my daughter's favorite Bible story, Jesus comes into Jericho, the throngs of crowds were so massive that short Zacchaeus ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree just because he wanted to have a a sight of Jesus. So he comes into town, he begins to teach He would go into that synagogue. Now, what do you think? If you're the son of God, 
This, is, this might be your one message in this town. This might be the only time the people are going to hear you. You have one chance to speak to them. What subject do you, do you speak on? What's the one thing that you say, all right, if I get one shot with these people, here we go. Well, the text here tells us that he proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom. And again, I'm drawing a contrast with maybe the, the, the themes that you hear from the contemporary American church all the time, right? How to be a good parent, how to improve your marriage, how to be a friend, you know? Messages that are not unimportant, but apparently in the eyes of Jesus, not the most important, because he didn't go around proclaiming the gospel of, the, of, of, the, of marriage or the, the gospel of the church or whatever. He proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom. When he got up to speak in that synagogue, that village, that one shot that he had, he talked to them about the kingdom of God. He proclaimed the good news. So what kingdom are we talking about and why is it such good news? Let's talk about the kingdom of God. And by the way, I put in here, if you go to the next slide please, I put in here the kingdom of heaven and the reason I did is that Matthew a few times calls it the kingdom of God, but he primarily calls it the kingdom of heaven. And scholars debate whether or not that means anything different and for the most part, the consensus is that it's essentially the same, okay? So Matthew's kingdom of heaven is everybody else's kingdom of God. And part of why I think this is not a particularly popular subject in pulpits is there's complexity to it, okay? There's complexity to it. This isn't one plus one equals two, okay? You're, you're not an elementary uh, theology school class. You're in a little bit of advanced theology here. And this is going to require a little bit of thinking, but it is worth it. Okay? It is worth it. Do you remember this exchange between Pilate and Jesus? This is after Jesus was arrested, prior to his crucifixion. John tells us this in John 18. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? So Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God. Pilate is not understanding how a kingdom could not be of this world. Like, what are you talking about? Confusion. Even the disciples are confused. Acts 1 tells us that after his crucifixion and after his resurrection, so this is after, hey Thomas, come and touch my hands, and this is after uh, Jesus meeting them at the Sea of Galilee for that little breakfast, and this is after, you know, uh, Peter, feed my sheep. This is after all of that. This is right before his ascension in Acts 1. This is what the disciples say to him. They asked, Lord, 
I can actually introduce it this way. If, if, if Jesus is about to leave and you get to ask one question, what's the one question you ask? When are you coming back, you know, or what are we supposed to do now? Please tell us. What is on the mind of the disciples? What are they talking about right before Jesus' ascension? Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? It's kingdom. They're thinking kingdom. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. And we see in this moment, there was this expectation in Israel that when the Messiah came, that he was going to throw off the yoke of the Romans and he was going to establish again that kingdom of David and Solomon, that there was going to be the the restoration of Israel to political prominence. That's what they were expecting. So even after his resurrection now, they're like, hey, is he now, he's going to throw the hammer down now, right? Here we go. This is going to be awesome. We're going to just see, you know, Pilate's going to get wiped out and Herod's going to get wiped out and the Caesar's going to get wiped out and man, and we're with him. We're going to be ruling and reigning. It's going to be awesome, right? And Jesus is about to leave them for like thousands of years. They don't know that. Uh, but they're confused. They're like, hey, wait a second. Aren't you supposed to be like sort of like ruling and reigning right now? What's going on here? The Jesus that arrived was radically different than their expectation. Remember the people came to Jesus and said, hey, quit hanging out in Galilee. Like if you're going to sort of take over the place, you got to go to Jerusalem. They were thinking political. A very different Jesus, a very different Messiah showed up though. In fact, some people speculate that one reason Judas betrayed Jesus is he wanted to force his hand into that political thing. He was tired of waiting for Jesus to like take over the world and I'm going to betray him and that'll force him to do what I think he needs to do. People all the time want to manipulate Jesus, even Judas. But the kingdom here is a very different kingdom. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. It has a very different expectation, and ultimately, it is much more wonderful, okay? Much more wonderful. So, let's talk about kingdom then, okay? If we're going to know what the kingdom of God is, let's define that kingdom thing. What is a kingdom, okay? What is true about any kingdom? In order for there to be a kingdom, you have to have a king, or you at least have to have a ruler. And you might say to me, well, you know, the United States doesn't have a king, but, you know, you can have a a form of government, representative democracy, something like that, and still have a kingdom. Yes, but you have to have some authority. For there to be a kingdom, there is an authority that is exerted throughout that kingdom. And typically, historically, that was, that was a king. A king without any kingdom would not last very, very or I'm sorry, a kingdom without a king would not bear, last very long. This is what Jesus said. A kingdom divided will not Stand. It has to have an authority that is exerted throughout that kingdom for it to be a kingdom. Secondly, a kingdom must have a realm. Okay? There has to be a place where that kingdom authority is being expressed, it's being exerted. This week I was working out, which is what I typically do, watching a World War II documentary, which is also what I typically do. And in the documentary, I'd never heard this story that in World War II, when, when Hitler conquered France, the deposed and exiled king of Germany from decades before, Wilhelm, 
writes a letter to Hitler, a praising kind of letter, and says, you know, you're restoring Germany to its glory, etc., etc. He says, and I am so excited that you will now restore the uh, monarchy of Germany to its rightful place. Okay? He writes that to Hitler. The story goes that Hitler reads the thing and he says to his driver, he goes, what an idiot. (laughs) Right? What an idiot. He was a king, but he had no kingdom. He He had the line, the bloodline, but he had no realm, no authority. For there to be a kingdom, you have to have a king, and then you have to have authority that is being exerted in some actual realm. And Wilhelm was looking for a realm to do that. A kingdom without a king is not a kingdom. A ruler without a realm is not a kingdom. Kingdoms have rulers and kingdoms have realms. And here is where when we talk about the kingdom of God, it gets a little bit challenging for us because it is different than the kingdoms in this world. It is different than Prussia and it's different than England and different than the United States of America. Why? Why? Because the kingdom of God, listen now, is the rule or reign of God through Jesus, okay? It is through Jesus. It is not land, okay? It's not political in that way, but it is the authority God exerts through Jesus, okay? It has been mediated through Jesus. This is Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and earth has been granted to me. Go now and make disciples. Go and take this authority and know wherever you go, lo, I am with you always. Okay? So that kingdom is the rule of God, the reign of God in all the world. But where is the realm of this rule? Okay? Where is Jesus ruling exactly? What are you talking about here? And to, uh, to explain this, I'd like to actually illustrate it first. And I'm depending here now that, that maybe you're a C.S. Lewis friend, uh, fan, okay, or friend. <laughs> uh, and if you don't know C.S. Lewis, maybe you know The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, okay? You're looking at me blankly, like, what are you talking about? Repent of this, friends, and read that book, okay? <laughs> you cannot get into the kingdom without reading The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, and read it to your kids over and over. So anyway, the line, the witch, and the wardrobe, basically here's the story of that. You have a kingdom called Narnia, okay? And the king of the kingdom is Aslan. But Aslan left. And in his absence, the white witch is ruling Narnia. And with her rule, everything has turned frozen. Don't confuse this with another story, okay? <laughs> everything has turned frozen, Right? The lakes are frozen, there's snow everywhere, it's cold, it's nothing like when Aslan was here, okay? Now if you read through the line, The Witch in the Wardrobe, as the story is going, there's a little rumor, there's like whispers that maybe Aslan is on the prowl, Aslan is back in Narnia, but nobody's seen him yet. Well, why are they saying that maybe Aslan is back? Because they're looking in the snow and there's little flowers that are poking out, Right? And snow is melting everywhere they look. And the rivers that had been frozen now are gushing with water. I haven't seen Aslan, but I see the effect of his presence. We think maybe Aslan's back in Narnia. The kingdom of God 
is like that. When Jesus came into this world, the kingdom of God came with him. He came here with authority. And the clash of those kingdoms is why there were all the time demons confronting Jesus and Jesus confronting demons. And why next week we're going to talk about the major confrontation between Jesus and Satan in the wilderness. That's just not a story of two old people that used to know each other getting back together again. That is the the titanic clash of two kingdoms where Satan offers him the kingdoms of this world if you will bow down to me. Huge, massive, kingdom-like, historic moment. We'll get into that next week. I'm trying to get you to come back, okay? Just priming the pump on that. But when the king shows up, he shows up with kingdom authority. It's like the Air Force One. Wherever Air Force One goes, there goes the United States of America. It says so on the side of the plane. It is traveling with the authority of the United States of America. And now there is a king, and his name is Jesus, and he has authority as the Son of God. But where is the realm? Where does he rule? And here's the answer to this class. For now, the realm of God's rule is the human heart in submission to Jesus as king, expressed by faith in him as Savior. Let me say that again, because this is really critical to this whole series, you getting what Jesus is teaching about the kingdom of God. It is the realm of God's rule in the human heart in submission to Jesus as king, expressed by faith in him as savior. So the kingdom of God is the saving reign of God through Christ. This kingdom is not of this world. It is not a kingdom of, the, the kingdom is not the people of the kingdom. The kingdom is not the church. Okay? The kingdom is not heaven, it is not earth. The kingdom is the rule of God itself. And this kingdom has a glorious king. And he has all authority given to him. It has a realm. It is the redeemed humanity now in submission to him as king of their life. Listen to Luke 17. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Okay? And then again, here's part of the challenge. If the kingdom of God was uh, Michigan, you would know when you're going into Michigan. There's a sign that says, welcome to Michigan. You can see the lines on the map. Okay, here's the kingdom of Michigan, right? Okay, it looks like a hand. And I was born up here, just throwing that in there, okay? In the top part, right? Uh, The kingdom of Michigan. But the kingdom of God is not like a line drawn on a map. It's not physical. It is spiritual. It is invisible. But by that, do not think for a second it is any less a kingdom than England ever was. It is a real kingdom, a critical kingdom. It just can't be observed in the way that the kingdoms of this world are observed. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. In other words, his authority for ruling and reigning is not derived from the votes of the American people or a bloodline from some human being, right? Actually, I take that back. It is a little bit with David, okay? I misspoke there. 
But the point that I'm making is he does not derive his authority from anything in this world. His authority is derived from God and the glory of his personhood as the Son of God. Also, do not take this for a second to mean that the way that it is now is the way that it's always going to be. The kingdom of God right now is invisible. It's almost secret. You can't tell it necessarily. Yes, there are rivers that are melting and there's flowers poking up through the snow. But it's not like the kingdom of England or the kingdom of the United States of America. But someday it very much will be. The Bible says that this invisible kingdom will become visible. You say, when will that become visible? When Christ returns as King of kings and Lord of lords and comes down into this world, now the kingdom of God has arrived in all of its glory and all of its splendor, and it will be political. The, kings, the kingdoms of the world will come and pay tribute to him, Revelation tells us. And the new heaven and the new earth, he will be king and glorious, and it will be everything, every inch of the universe will be visibly, presently in submission to the glory of Jesus. At his name, every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So for now, you have the kingdom of man and you have the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of man's got lines, and it's got gold, and it's got ships, and armies, and economies, and all the rest. The kingdom of God has redeemed people in submission to him, which seems so insignificant, almost like a mustard seed, which grows and fills the whole world, which is the point of that parable. It seems small and insignificant now, but someday, whoa, okay, whoa. So it is here, it is now, how do we see the snow melting and the flowers appearing? Sinners repenting of their sin and turning in faith to Jesus is melting snow and flowers poking through. A church united around the doctrine of Jesus and loving one another and loving the community is rivers flowing once again. It's almost as if Aslan is back in town but nobody's seen him. We just see the effects of his presence all around us. So it is here, but it is not yet what it will be. So when it comes to understanding the kingdom, it really is the story of the Bible. And two authors wrote, they wrote a whole book on this, and I'm just gonna summarize how they tell the story of, of the scripture and human history in terms of the kingdom. Act one, God establishes his kingdom, creation. Act two, there's rebellion in the kingdom. That's the fall. Act three, the king chooses Israel. This is redemption initiated. Act four, or actually interlude, a kingdom waiting for an ending. That's that little sliver of that one page between Old Testament and New in your Bible. Act four, the coming of the kingdom, redemption accomplished. Act five, five, spreading the news of the kingdom, the church's mission. This is Acts and following. Act six, the return of the king, redemption completed. Now here's the thing, friends, with this kind of a list here, it would be easy for you to say, well, now that's an interesting illustration. That's an interesting analogy. And you would be wrong. This is not an illustration. 
Like, oh, that's an interesting way to tell it. This is not an analogy of the real story. This is the real story. Okay, this kingdom is not a fairy tale. It is not Narnia. It is real. It is right here, right now, in the midst of us, with our hearts in submission to Jesus as king. It is here, right now. And someday it will be clear who is in that kingdom and who is not. For now, we have always tares among the wheat. That's what Jesus said. And right here in this room, no doubt, there are tares among the wheat. But someday, Jesus is going to divide all of humanity like the sheep from the goats. And the goats will go to eternal punishment, and the sheep will be welcomed into that eternal kingdom. And that kingdom will rule with absolute power because Satan will be defeated and cast into hell. And so complete will be the rule and the reign of Jesus forever that Zechariah 14.20 says that Jesus will be Lord right down to the bridles on the horses which will say, holy to the Lord. Even the bridles in the future kingdom. It will be clear where their allegiance is. It will be to the king of the kingdom. And so to step back and say, well, okay, why is this so important? Why is the kingdom so important? And we begin because the king says so. The king says this is critical. It is what he preached. It is what he emphasized. It is what when he had one shot at one synagogue in one village in Galilee, he talked about this kingdom. And he said, seek it above everything else. Lay up your treasures in that kingdom, not in this one. Live for that kingdom, not for this one. The kingdom of man, it is fleeting, it is temporary, it is corrupt, it is satanic. The kingdom of God is glorious, and the king of that kingdom is the king of kings and the lord of lords, and he is on his throne. Right now, he is on his throne. He has absolute authority granted to him, and he rules with a name and a glory that is above every name. He's the king of this kingdom. And secondly, the reason it's so important is this kingdom is here right now. And the ultimate question is, are you in it? Are you a citizen of the kingdom of God? This is a summary of of Jesus' ministry from Colossians 1. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. The Bible says that we are born into a kingdom, but it is not the kingdom of God. We are born into the kingdom of darkness. We are born into the kingdom of Satan. We are by birth and by nature sinners. But Jesus came to deliver us from that old kingdom, that kingdom of death, that kingdom of darkness, and to transfer our citizenship to the kingdom of light, to the kingdom of God. And here's the thing, you don't have to pass this class, student. You don't have to, you don't even, you don't have to get a C on the final exam about what the kingdom of God is. All you have to do is know the king. You have to know the king. And the king of this kingdom says, you can know me personally. By repenting of your sin, all the deeds of the kingdom of darkness, repent of those. Put your personal trust in me as 
Savior and King of your life and become my disciple. Become a citizen in my kingdom and I will give you eternal life. It is essentially to say this, I pledge allegiance to Jesus. I pledge allegiance to Jesus. And this is what Jesus taught and this is what the apostles taught and this is what we're going to be teaching for many months ahead seek first the kingdom of God